2: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com
0: to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. Broadcasting from the walk-in closet for one last time, WWE is reconsidering. At reevaluating and postponing its move to its new headquarters from one location in Stamford, Connecticut to another location in Stamford, Connecticut, I am moving the WrestleNomics headquarters from one location in Buffalo, New York to another location in Buffalo, New York. But today is WWE Q2 2020, July 30th, 2020, and WE went to the SEC, went to the public today, and reported earnings. And what did we get? The big, the big takeaways, as I've been trained to do, is tell me what the five big takeaways are. Biggest being number one, WWE overperformed in terms of the profits that financial analysts in Wall Street were expecting. Financial analysts in Wall Street were expecting about at 12 million on the quarter from net income. WWE has reported. Let's pull it up here. Go to the trending schedules. Go to the bottom line where it says net income Q2, Q2, 43.8 million dollars in profit. That's after that's after expenses. That's after taxes. That's after interest. 44 million dollars when the market was expecting 12. That would be slightly underperformed on revenue expectation, but that's secondary when they pulled the expected level of profit. which I cannot deny brings to mind objections that were raised at the time on April 15th, 2020 this year, when WWE announced a number of cost cutting measures, including laying off and furloughing employees and uh, more memorably firing a number of talent, some WWE defenders, even those unlike Jerry McDivitt who are not compensated by WWE, they merely defend WWE on Twitter or other social media platforms. They said that WWE had to cut costs. It was merely a matter of keeping the company profitable and not in the red. WWE's total reported net income for the first half of 2020 now totals $70 million. That's not revenue. That's net income. That's basically the latest form of profit after all the expenses and taxes and so forth are taken out. What does that mean in context? Last year, a very profitable year for WWE, 2019, WWE reported a total for the entire year of $77 million in net income. They are now already in half a year at $70 million. WWE now just needs to make another $30 million in net income. And remember, in the first six months, they've already made $70 million. They only need to make another $30 million for the rest of the six months remaining in the year to achieve the company's most profitable year ever. Already made $26 million in Q1, $44 million in Q2. That means they only need to make an average of $15 million for each of the two remaining quarters of the year to set the all-time net income record for a year. Seems like a foregone conclusion to me. And yes, it will be the most profitable year ever, even exceeding... The greatest days of the Attitude Era even exceeding the years 1998, 1999, 2000, and 2001 when WWE was much more popular. Even when you adjust those years for inflation to modern U.S. dollars. Even adjusting for inflation, WWE's most profitable year ever was 2018 when they recorded $99.6 million in net income. That is the record. The WWE we know today is more profitable than the WWE of the glory years of the Attitude Era. And this year is well on track to be the most profitable year ever by a wide margin during a pandemic. But not only that, WB, the company that is struggling to stay alive and just had to cut costs, wrote this as one of the bullet points on page one of its earnings release. It said, quote, Management may resume its opportunistic acquisition of stock Under the company's $500 million share repurchase program, subject to WB's business outlook and liquidity, as well as whether share repurchases compare favorably to other capital allocation alternatives. What does that mean? That means WB is telling the public, we're thinking about resuming our stock buyback program, which we suspended months ago due to COVID-19 concerns. WB is thinking about restarting its stock buyback program. What is a stock buyback program? It's essentially when a company uses the cash that it makes from its business to buy shares of its own stock, thus increasing the demand for the stock, hopefully increasing the price of the stock, and thus delivering more value to shareholders, making uh, all of the shares that are held by W investors worth more money, have more value. Possibly related, who is the biggest W shareholder? Vincent K. McMahon. Who else holds a lot of shares? Well, big financial institutions like Lindsay Del Train, I think is the biggest institutional owner. But the next person who uh, leads in terms of being a shareholder is Chief Brand Officer, Stephanie McMahon. A lot of other executives hold stock as well. But the point here is that W increases liquidity. It made sure it had lots of cash on hand by cutting a lot of costs, including cutting employees and talent. And it's using cash now. It's considering using cash to buy back its own stock. So who is that good news for? That's good news if you're a W shareholder, especially if you are a large shareholder like Vince McMahon or Stephanie McMahon or... Linsdale Train Limited or BlackRock. Great news if those major institutional investors are controlling your retirement funds. Not the best news if you are someone who is laid off by WB recently. And it's, it's easier to think about the talent who were laid off, who have names and faces that we know, but many of whom will find opportunities elsewhere or already have, in fact. I think the people who really got the bad end of this are the not the talent who are already making six figures, but maybe the, the W corporate employees who were laid off as a result of the cost cutting, whose names we don't know and whose salaries are probably much lower. What other key takeaways are there? In the Q&A, the most interesting part of the day, perhaps, Vince McMahon faced a lot of questions about the ongoing decline of ratings for Raw and SmackDown. We'll get to that in some detail Uh, Another interesting point, e-commerce had an outstanding quarter. Uh, In Q2, e-commerce sold $12.6 million in online merchandise sales. The biggest quarter, at least within the last few years, maybe ever. uh, Biggest quarter in a long time, at least. We don't know how many orders were made or what the average order price was. We'll find that out later in the actual 10Q Quarterly report, which will give us more detail. That hasn't come out yet. Uh, W should be publishing that with the SEC within a day. Uh, Product licensing sales, or at least revenue, seem to be up. As it definitely was up to nine point seven million dollars, which is up from nine point four million dollars in the prior Q one or prior Q two, rather. Basically, what does that mean? It means that probably video game and action figure sales were slightly higher in this Q two versus last year's Q two. So consumer products, despite there being no venue merchandise, there were no events, so therefore there, were, there was no venue merchandise. There was no merchandise sales at events because there were no events. But somewhat, that was offset by people apparently going online and ordering W merchandise. Another key takeaway, the WWE network. We always, in each quarter, we get some news about how the W network performed in terms of attracting paid subscribers. Uh, average paid subscribers in the quarter was actually down slightly making it the fifth consecutive quarter that paid subs have been down. However, end period subs, that is the number of paid subs at the end of the quarter, in this case, June 30th, that was up slightly. And and there was a lot of discussion about the free tier that has been introduced. It was introduced on June 1st. So a lot of questions, a lot of discussion about that. We'll get into some more detail about that in a little while, and there was also the, the emergence of Executive Vice President of the Advanced Media Group, J.R. Donlin, uh, answered a lot of questions at the deference of Vince McMahon on this call. J.R. Donlin also spoke somewhat at the share, at the annual shareholders meeting that happened on July 16th. A couple other interesting things at the front here: uh, we learned a tidbit about W blocking its YouTube content in India. Apparently, to appease its Indian broadcast partner, Sony, we know uh, from previous comments that W executives have made that w 's most popular market for its YouTube content is India.'ve heard it, uh, it's, it sounded like uh, uh, you know, evidently from some comments that uh, people in India made up uh, about 70 to 80 percent of wB's YouTube viewing. Apparently they are geo-blocking some of the content. They didn't say which content. I would guess that it's the content related to Raw and SmackDown. Maybe NXT as well. Another thing at the front. There was a, a quick question about Evolve. w's acquisition of the WN-associated brand Evolve. Uh, interim CFO Frank Riddick said that it, it called it a small acquisition, a content acquisition. Something that's... Pretty small in the, in the corporate picture of WWE, but it's interesting to wrestling fans. So as always, later in the podcast, we're going to play some actual clips from actual WWE executives and the financial analysts who asked questions in the Q&A, and we're going to go over now my predictions of WWE's key performance indicators and my predictions of their revenue reporting, their overall profit, in this case, operating income uh, reporting, my predictions versus what W actually reported, how far off was I? Let's find out. <laughs> Let's start with key performance indicators and then we'll go to the actual finances and get really hardcore with the numbers later. But starting with the KPIs first, I predicted for worldwide average paid subs throughout the quarter. So basically that means you take the paid subs on each day, on all 90 days, For April, May, and June, you average what was the average number of paid subs we had throughout the three months. I predicted 1,553,000. The actual number was 1,661,000, 7% higher than what I predicted. For U.S., I was also off by 7%. And for international, I was off by 6%. I predicted for international, 427,000 paid subs. The actual number 454,000. Average attendance, what do you know? I was right on the money. North America zero, international zero. Next up, TV viewership. TV viewership is pretty easy to predict because uh, they are now reporting what we call the P2 plus, the total audience viewership. They used to report a TV rating, but now switching to the actual number of viewers. Uh, I predicted for Raw. Uh, 1.842 million. The actual number that they reported was 1.838. Why are those numbers off from what is uh, on Shoba's Daily? I'm guessing they get some more final version of the number that they're probably putting into their calculation. So off by 0%, if I actually take that out to a a decimal, to one decimal place, I was off by 0.2%. SmackDown, I was uh, too low by 1%. Uh, predicting 2.085, they actually got 2.099, so pretty close on on TV viewership, which again I'm basically cheating on. Uh, Avod global hours viewed the the video viewing that's happening on ad-supported platforms like YouTube and Facebook. I predicted based on the social Blade numbers that I had read, showing that uh, WWE had its biggest quarter ever for YouTube views. So I predicted uh, 510 million hours. Uh, of viewing time only 374 so I was way off there too high by 27 percent likewise for just the number of views so not the minutes being viewed but the or not the hours rather being viewed but just the number of video views I predicted 14.2 billion and I was uh, about 4 million too high or 44 billion too high the actual number was 9.9, so off by 30% there. And then social media followers were actually down for the first time ever. I'm guessing that has to do with the talent cuts because they're including all the talent and all the brand social media accounts in their counting is what, I, what I've always understood. So it makes sense, I guess, that they, that they, that number would be down uh, in a quarter where they made significant, maybe the sort of the biggest talent cuts they probably made in, in such a short period of time. So the I predicted... billion total social media followers, it actually turned out to be 1.08. So I just predicted incremental increases on the the three areas that they report, which are Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Other social media includes Instagram probably as the largest piece, and uh, they were down. So going on to finances now, looking at the revenues, I didn't try to predict profits for each second, but they they do report revenues for each segment, so we've got, I think it's nine segments here, let's count them up real quick. Uh, There are 11 segments that they report revenue for, of course they only report profit for the three divisions. So we start with the, the media division, there are a media division, a live events division, and a consumer products division, and we break down segments within those three divisions for revenue only. So the first segment is the network slash pay per view segment. I predicted forty eight million; it turned out to be forty nine. I was a little bit low there. I was too high on core content rights fees, predicting about one hundred and forty million dollars for Raw and SmackDown fees. It really turned out to be one hundred and thirty three. Media ads and sponsors was an interesting one because there had been a lot of talk in the industry that ad demand would, was down because of the economy overall, and the expectation was that that WWE would be affected in it, and it was. I, I predicted that it would be down by about. 33% uh, year over year. Uh, it was down. Uh, it, was, it did a little bit better than that. I predicted 12.7 million dollars, but I was pretty close. It ended up being 13.3. The other media segment I was way off on. I predicted 15.5 million dollars, and it turned out to be just 4.5. What's in the other media segment? Usually, it's uh, major money from the team of Saudi Arabia for the major events there. There of course wasn't a Saudi Arabia event in this quarter. Uh, there's usually two per year, so there wouldn't have been one this quarter in all likelihood anyway. But what's in in this segment is WWE Studios, uh, the reality TV programs, which there was a full season of Total Bellas in this segment, which did quite well and which was did get a mention in the earnings press release. Uh, but only 4.5 million dollars. I wonder if the the Big Show show money that came from that 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 show appeared on Netflix in April. I wonder if that is included in here at all. I didn't see any note yet. Maybe the 10Q, uh, which will come out hopefully tomorrow, will tell us. Uh, In the live events division, of course, there was no North American ticket sales, no international ticket sales. I was right on the money on those. But there was $300,000 in advertising and sponsors related to events. I have no idea how they ended up with some money in that category, but they did. And in the other area for events, which includes... Things like travel packages and secondary ticket sellers. In consumer products, I predicted 7.7 for product licensing, which includes things like action figures and video games and mobile games. 7.7 it turned out to be 9.7, so that'd be better than I thought it would, by about 26%. Venue merchandise, I predicted 0. It was 0. And e-commerce, I was down by a full 110%, I predicted 6 million. And it turned out to be $12.6 million in online merchandise sales. Now, I guess that those mainly happen on W Shop, but probably also through other sellers like Amazon. Uh, CFO Frank Ray did put over on the call that they had introduced a number of title belts, uh, custom title belts. I think the Brahma Bull Rock title belt was mentioned. Maybe the Stone Cold Steve Austin one. Sorry, I don't know if the uh, the Bray Wide themed belt that has been much talked about and was sold for thousands of dollars or something. I don't know if that was included. So overall, I predicted 229.3 million dollars in total revenue for the company in the quarter. Turned out to be 223.4. So uh, I was too high by 3%. Total operating income for the quarter I predicted 70.9 million. Turned out to be just. So there you go. We've gone through the three divisions in WWE's reporting finances and the 11 segments within those three divisions. Something that should be taught in, in every school around America for all the future WWE Universe members. We'll take a quick run through some of the questions that financial analysts asked Next, and then we'll go through some of your questions fielded through Twitter. And leading off, we'll listen to this question from the conference call from Lightsheds, Brandon Ross, who addressed Chairman and CEO Vince McMahon about ratings.
3: Hello, everyone. Thanks for taking the questions. I have uh, some follow-ups on the ratings issues that were identified a little earlier. First, um, why do you think, these are for Vince, why do you think AEW and NXT have bounced back better from the initial COVID shock than Raw and SmackDown? And then, based on your commentary last quarter, it seemed you had a strategy for fixing Raw that indicated patience in, quote, getting over some newer talent Did you abandon that plan in firing Heyman? And more broadly, why did you um, fire Heyman? And uh, lastly, um, given Paul's recent relative success with NXT, do you think he could be of help on Raw and or SmackDown in an elevated role? Thank you. That was a lot. Um, that, sorry. Uh, i sorry. We could break it down if you want. <laughs> but just first, why do you think AEW and NXT have bounced back better from the initial COVID shock than Raw and SmackDown? I think some of those are new. Something that's new uh, and what have you. And it's up to us to make Raw and SmackDown feel more useful. Uh, that is where we're going. Um, and I just... As far as continuing on, I said what was new and building characters, you always have to build characters, uh, constantly. And it seems to me that, you know, as far as Paul Deck helping out on Raw and SmackDown, uh, that happens. So it's all hands-on, deck in terms of uh, all that we do. As far as Paul is concerned, uh, he did, uh, I thought, a very, very good job uh, in terms of you know, creativity.
2: So that's Lightshed's Brandon Ross uh asking the question with Vince McMahon answering. And to put this in some context, on Tuesday, uh Lightshed came out with a blog on its website. Lightshed is a a uh media analysis firm. Uh and they came out with a blog about W stock. So Lightshed, the people associated with it were formerly uh a part of a a firm called BTIG, but now they've reorganized under Lightshed and they post these Blogs periodically about stocks that they're interested in, including, among them, WWE. And in an article that went up on Tuesday under the bylines of Brandon Ross, Rich Greenfield, and Mark Kelly, just to read an excerpt here. COVID or no COVID, creative appears to be at the center of the issues. Vince McMahon has acknowledged things need to change multiple times. However, while there have been short-lived experiments, the content appears to continuously return to a similar formula under his absolute control. McMahon went so far as to hire creative heads for Raw and SmackDown a year ago, with Paul Heyman heading Raw and Eric Bischoff heading SmackDown. And we we know how that turned out uh, later on. One of the largest problems we have identified is an inability to create new superstars. Every era of WWE wrestling has been defined by some key stars at the top. Recent years have been bereft of that star power, with Roman Reigns the closest, but never on that same level. More broadly, there really has been very little younger talent that have broken through at all on their way to replenishing even the middle level of stars in the men's division. End quote. So, in, in light of that, not really a surprise that Brandon Ross asked the questions that he did. And I do think it's rare that you see uh, someone from the financial community come out with a, a view of W stock that appears to get to the heart of what at least I think are a lot of the core issues. with. And I think the issue is that just that the analysts look at the company and they look at the documents. And they don't study or know much about the content. And WWE is one of many other companies that they study. So I think a a great job here by Light Jed and by Brandon Ross. And I think he asked appropriate questions. And I think Vince McMahon did not like it. If uh, his response of, that's a lot, is any indication. And maybe his tone otherwise. He didn't really seem to have an answer for what WD was going to do about ratings. There were a number of other questions about ratings on this call. Vince stressed uh, repeatedly that the live audience is really important. He seemed to be blaming a lot of it on the lack of live audience, which is fair. But as Brandon Ross uh, raised, Raw and SmackDown have suffered worse than NXT and AEW. If we take the period of January 1st to March 12th, this is right before COVID restrictions go into place and empty arena wrestling begins. So basically that's every episode of, of... The major four programs that happened in 2020 before code started to affect them. If I compare that to the last two months of of those four programs, if I compare those two periods for each of the four programs, I find that in total viewership, Raw and SmackDown are down about 20%. Raw down 23%, SmackDown down 21%. NXT is only down 1% in its total audience. AEW is down 16%. If we look at the key demo... Raw is down 32%, SmackDown is down 34%, while NXT is down 15 So it's been hurt about half as much as Raw and SmackDown, and AEW is down 18%. So there's evidence to support what Brandon Ross is saying there, that AEW and NXT haven't been hurt as bad, or they've bounced back somewhat after the initial hit from COVID. So if the main issue, or the only issue, is that there's not live audiences there, then why is Raw and SmackDown being affected more heavily than NXT and AEW? And Vince's answer to that is that, well, it's because they're new. Because AEW Dynamite is a new program, and NXT is not a new program, but it's new on its platform. Well, SmackDown is new on its platform on Fox, but, well, SmackDown has been on a major cable company for decades, but that was Vince's way to try to explain Why shows in his control are down, and why shows that are not in his control, in the case of NXT, defers, apparently, creative approval authority largely, if not completely, to Paul Levesque. And of course, in the case of AEW Dynamite, that's a program totally separate from his company. So Ross raises in his question, when are we going to see Paul, he's referring to Paul Levesque, uh, help out more on Raw and SmackDown? And Vince sort of responds, saying that Paul does, which I'm sure he does, but... Vince McMahon remains the head of creative and remains the approving authority and remains the person who sets the vision. But I think what Ross is trying to get at there, or at least what could be derived from his question is that in NXT and in AEW, those are two programs that are not controlled by Vince McMahon. Raw and SmackDown are two programs that are controlled by Vince McMahon. And as far as the the Paul Heyman question there, what's being referred to is that there are two positions, uh, Executive director positions that were created last year around this time, executive director of Raw and of SmackDown. Uh, those positions were given to Paul Heyman and to Eric Bischoff, respectively. Eric Bischoff only lasted a few months, I think. Paul Heyman was relieved of those duties a few weeks ago, and Bruce Prichard, who had replaced Bischoff in in the in the executive director of SmackDown role, has been consolidated into both roles to, in the words of the WWE Twitter account, to streamline the creative process. And Vince, Vince's response to the question about what, why Heyman was uh, removed from that role, he has no answer other than to say that Heyman did a very good job for us. So, fortunately for WWE, they find themselves in a, in a situation where the value of their live content and of live content generally has exploded over the years and there's no sign of stopping. And WWE did cost-cutting, and they are more profitable than the market expected, and the stock is up in after-hours trading, up from about $45 when the market closed to 48 last I checked. Elsewhere in the call, there was a question about the value of WWE possibly selling its pay-per-views or its network content off of the network into a major streaming platform, maybe like Peacock, maybe ESPN, maybe Amazon, A deal for WD to do just that seemed imminent earlier in the the year before COVID, which seems to have interrupted those negotiations. So the question was raised whether the potential value is still there for WD to do what it called earlier a transformational deal or was it a transformative strategy that, that would give WD even more guaranteed revenue.
3: Uh, look, we've seen cord-cutting accelerate in the pandemic, which has made it easier for streamers to acquire subs than just even six months ago. And at the same time, you know we've we've talked about the ratings being a bit challenged, which is understandable with some stars on the sideline. But for someone on the outside looking in, it would seem like maybe your negotiating leverage with a potential licensor of the network could have potentially taken a hit while the deal's on hold. So maybe it'd be helpful to understand what really stands out about the network to the licensors. And then what gives you sort of confidence this deal looks the same, whether it's 6, 12 months from now when the deal gets done instead of maybe coming in a bit lower than you initially expected? Well, I think that um, obviously, as we talked about, we're continuing to invest in the network and driving further subscribers and engagement and building very compelling content, which makes it attractive to um, potential partners. The other part is just the way um, with, with the addition of, uh, streaming services with a number of uh, entities, Disney, uh, uh, Comcast, etc., um, you know, we believe that there, there's, you know, a WWE product would be very attractive for some of those platforms. So um, with, in the overall macro trends that you mentioned, um, you know, we are seeing increase in some of the limited streaming properties that are, that are not doing well. So they're going to be clear winners and losers. And, and we certainly think
2: that the WWE content would be valuable to one of those winners. So there's interim CFO, Frank Riddick, taking that question. I'm not quite sure what he means by the limited streaming properties, but I think what he's saying there, or at least what the argument would be, is that there are many streaming players in the market now, and it's a competitive market. And I think certainly a service like Peacock that was supposed to have the Olympics this summer and, and maybe other platforms as well, need you know, all the special exclusive content they can get to set themselves apart from the other options out there. And that should keep the demand strong for W's network content or especially its pay-per-views. And, and my thought continues to be, uh, I think they can sell the pay-per-views. Maybe they sell them for $100 million average annual value, maybe even less than that now. But if they can, I think they can still maintain a W Network of their own, a subscription platform, of their own that doesn't contain pay per views, but contains the library content, other content like 205 Live. Not that 205 Live is that valuable, but the library content is valuable, I think, to a few hundred thousand subscribers uh, worldwide who would continue to hold that subscription for $10 a month. And I don't have a great understanding of what the costs are of the W Network in terms of just keeping the infrastructure. Viable, but it it would seem to me that there is, just as there is in the case of USC Fight Pass, which is presumably profitable, that there is a way to do a subscription streaming service that attracts one or two or 300,000 subscribers and to keep it profitable, especially when you're not having to run expensive pay-per-views associated with it and you sell those pay-per-views off for guaranteed money, which may or may not be good for the motivations of, you know, (laughs) The, the creative brains of the company that has to promote these events. It may or may not be good for the long-term motivations of the company to continue to do, as they say, create compelling content. But financially, if you just look at it on paper, it's a more lucrative outcome to sell the pay-per-view events. Oh, and by the way, the, the big question is, where where do the NXT Takeovers land? And maybe those stay on the network and continue to attract subscribers there and retain subscribers there. That seems like a more lucrative and less volatile model than even the network, which was in part uh, one of the, the selling points of the network internally, is that it would create a, a more stable, less volatile model than pay-per-view, which was, of course, a way of selling events individually. And the network is just a recurring charge. And we'll jump to your questions now with a few questions from William. Uh, first, he asks regarding the point that live events still had a $4.5 million in expenses despite no events happening, which, by the way, I checked on that and it's really $3.5 million that I was overlooking that W did make a million dollars in the other segment and in the ads and sponsors segment, which I have no explanation for. But what is the current relationship W and its arena part of its w and its arena partners and it is the four and a half million dollars in expenses a payment to the venues for shows missed due to do the to the pandemic I would guess that it has something to do with venue holds uh, Vince mentioned on the annual shareholders meeting that uh, they have a number of tentative dates and those tentative dates keep getting pushed back further I would guess that has something to do with first of all that secondly there's there may be uh, employee salaries that are included in that I would guess maybe employee salaries are going to corporate and other though um, but it may, it may be just be a combination of those is my best guess and question number two what is the current situation with the current situation regarding the lack of venue for SummerSlam are they going to do something silly and buy or rent an island given that they rejected they've been rejected by most of their partners so far? Well, I would note that Vince did say that he has a plan B. And he wouldn't say what it was, but who knows? The likeliest uh, thing I can imagine that would be like that is m- maybe Vince making a deal with Dana White to use Fight Island. But apart from that, if if they do have to, and this is more related to what was being talked about on the annual shareholders meeting, which, by the way, you can find, you can listen to on the corporate website, and you can read my summary uh, at uh, WrestleNomics.com. But there were, there were some questions about what would happen if... Uh, With cases on the rise in Florida of COVID, uh, what would happen if WB had to leave Florida and was no longer allowed to do events in Florida? And I think there are other states, particularly Mm. states that maybe maybe don't have the the case rate per capita that Florida does, that would accept them. And that was even brought up on the April 23rd uh, conference call for Q1. And I'm afraid I may have answered uh, question number three. uh, Does WB's long-term relationship with the state of Florida due to the current pandemic help or harm them? With the press going forward, similar to the event deal that they made with the KSA, uh, the press—I I don't think the press cares or the, the media cares about what WWE does. Um, there's not much that I think WWE could do to strongly affect their, their public perception. Um, I do think, as a lot of people say, you know, people just kind of look at it as well. It's all fake wrestling. I think even the uh, financial analysts don't uh generally look at it much beyond that. It's this weird wrestling thing that they don't get. And I think the the brand value and the ad value of WWE has generally uh been repaired in the last ten years or so and I think T V P G has helped with that and I think a lot of the charity work that they do, as much as we can make fun of it and and, and believe that it's morally superficial. I think that's helped the uh, W and NBC Universal a few years ago launched this uh, The Hero in All of Us campaign to try to attract uh, better sponsors and better advertisers. So I think WD as a ad value has never been better, but yet still they do. Uh, things like they're doing now, which is the way that they've handled COVID and the relationship with the Saudi government, that it's just too... And, and, and uh, as, as, it, as the next question is about, is about the stock buyback. All this stuff, I think, is just too deep in the weeds for... I don't know, the, the general perception to distinguish. And WWE's or pro-wrestling's perception is already sort of marred to begin with. And I do think there's a great deal more subtlety that people can view pro-wrestling with, but generally, that's not what happens. Question number four, why are they thinking about resuming a stock buyback program given the current climate? Uh, because it's good for investors. Uh, if you buy back your stock, you increase the value of your stock, and that's good for investors. And those are the people that you're you're serving. There, you're you're serving the people who own the company, and it just so happens that the person who owns the most, the highest portion of the company, is the CEO. How badly? Number question number five. How badly is Bingo Night missed during these investor calls? And there is no. This is the second. WB conference call with no George Berrios, and therefore the no Berrios bingo cards distributed. George Berrios, of course, is the former CFO and co-president of WB, who was ousted on January 30th along with co-president Michelle Wilson. But maybe in the future. We have uh, Christina Salen, who takes the CFO role, effective August 3rd, just a few days away. So I, I, I'm sure she will be on the next conference call but no telling if or to what degree she will use unusual buzzwords. And next, Jesse asks, is there a noticeable breaking point with Fox or USA that if ratings continue to slip, WWE would be in danger of perhaps not being canceled, but really put under pressure by those networks, a danger zone for ratings. Uh, I'm, I'm still very much trying to learn about how the economics of the TV industry work. I, I definitely do think the point at which Raw is no longer the number one ranked TV show on the USA Network. Uh, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, NXT is ranked number three, according to WWE's press release. It's the number three show on the USA Network. I would guess that Chris uh, Chrisley Knows Best or something is number two. But the point at which WWE Raw starts to slip from being the top USA show, and it's got a lot of margin in that regard, I think, the point at which... Raw starts slipping out of regularly being in the top five on Monday night in cable and the key demo. And even while Raw's ratings and SmackDown's ratings, well, especially Raw, because Raw hasn't changed networks, even while Raw's viewership has declined steadily and somewhat predictably over the years, it's fallen in half from 2015. But while it's fallen in half from 2015, it hasn't changed but uh, in its rankings very much at all. And the best that I can tell, it's it's not so much the viewership numbers that are the most important thing to look at, but to look at the extent to which WWE programming is a peak program among all other programs on, on television. And probably what adds to its value is that a lot of people, while some people do DVR it, a lot of people do watch it live. And probably more so than they do other programs that are scripted entertainment. Secondly, in general, do you think the questions directed toward Vince are becoming more critical of WWE's creative decisions and the impact they may be having on business as compared to previous years? Creatively, I think this is a very insulated company. I don't think Vince is going to let the questions that he's being asked about ratings or about the creative direction bother him much. I don't know. If, if anything, they may it may make him dig his heels in further, but it's hard for there to be much of an impact while the company is in such good financial shape. And it's something that you know I talk about often here is that WWE has escalating TV rights fees. It's not just that the TV rights are are big and the contract that they got was a big upgrade, but that the way the contract is structured is that as the, f- the five year contract goes on, in the case of the U.S. deal, those fees get larger and larger. And I imagine a lot of their international deals are structured similarly. The India deal took effect in Q2, they confirmed today. And the India deal is a 1.8x increase over the previous five years. And that is a brand new five-year deal. And then on top of that, you've got the uh, reporting today where they exceeded the profit expectations of the analysts. Maybe the analysts not fully understanding just how much more profitable Raw and SmackDown are to produce out of the performance center out of, as opposed to out of, uh, arenas. You know, this was the first full quarter of that. There were only a couple of weeks of that in Q1, but WWE beat, uh, analyst expectations. There's a stock buyback program, which makes the company, well, there's, there's not a stock buyback program being, being resumed, but it's being discussed. And, uh, that, that's good news for investors. And it's good news for the stock price. So this company is very financially secure. As we talked about earlier, it's going to be more profitable this year than at any point in its history, adjusted for inflation. And I think what Vince is doing creatively creates short-term problems for the company. It created the AEW opportunity. It, Vince's disenfranchisement, uh, Vince, Vince creating disenfranchised, not just fans, but disenfranchised talent. Is one of the necessary cre- conditions among others that allowed the AEW opportunity to be viable. That led to higher costs for talent that may lead to more competition in sort of more subtle ways between WWE and AEW. We've seen, you know, two, uh, you know, Sky in two markets in the UK and in Italy allow WWE to go elsewhere and then Sky soon after, acquire rights to AEW. Hard to say whether AEW's existence is is a factor in that, but that happened. But long-term, more ominously, maybe bad creative and the weak ability to create stars, which leads to declining popularity of the product, which leads to lower viewership, maybe that eventually leads to WWE's TV rights value, no longer being as valuable as it is or no longer growing in value. Uh, one of the points that was raised in the Lightshed article that I uh, talked about earlier is that maybe there's a scenario in the future where, which is kind of like the situation we have now, where the, the peak content, the most watched content on TV, becomes extremely more valuable. So things that are live, mainly live sports, are the most valuable properties. But maybe eventually this trajectory continues to a point where it's only the most valuable among that category that gets really valuable and everything else begins to fall to the wayside. Namely, what's being imagined here is that in order to better compete for NFL, companies like NBCU and Fox would invest less in properties like WWE so that they could have more money to bid with on the NFL. And maybe that's how this TV rights cruise ship that W is sailing comes to a stop. But if that's the case, that's in the pretty far future, at least not for the next you know, few years or so. Ws current deals with NBC, and Fox run all the way through September 2024 with negotiations starting well before then, maybe a year and a half before then. Maybe two years before then. I think a year and a half is when they complete the deal usually. But generally, I think what fans want, maybe what a lot of people who listen to wrestling podcasts like this one want, is they want some sort of consequence for what they perceive as the the content that's not very good, the the TV shows that aren't very good. But we we live in a complicated and strange media environment where WWE is getting less popular, but it is still uh, increasingly valuable. At least Raw and SmackDown are. But I'm a little bit pressed for time this week. I've got to spend a little bit more time moving tomorrow. But uh, there are a lot of other things I would always like to talk about. You know, uh, Reddit, uh, the, the squared circle Reddit, subreddit, is that what it's called? Uh, came out with its survey results, which are very interesting. I hope to take a close look at the data there. Still continuing to work on the results of the Pro Wrestling... F- favorability survey, it was called, uh, that I did. We'll eventually talk about that. And I came across last week, last weekend, WWE had its, we knew it had its annual shareholders meeting, which it always does. Usually in every April they have a shareholders meeting. Somewhere at a hotel or something. And it would be in person. But this year, of course, because of coronavirus, they did it virtually. And I figured, well, this is going to be public. You have to hold shares and then you get a confirmation number and that's how you log in or something. I think that was what was going on. So I don't know if this was actually webcast live for the public or not, but uh, I don't know how soon it did appear on the corporate website, but the audio is right there. The webcast of the audio is right there and you can listen to it, anyone, whether you're a shareholder or not. I'm not a shareholder. I've never been a shareholder, but I, I came across the link, which may have been sitting there for 10 days. Uh, the, this annual shareholders meeting that happened on July 16th, uh, and I guess on July 26th, I was just you know browsing, the like, like everybody does, browsing the WWE corporate website and in the, in the, you know, you know, the investors section, the investor overview. And uh, somehow I was the first person who saw that the webcast link was there. And of, of course, I avidly listened to it and tweeted about it and wrote up a summary of it. And you can find that summary at WrestleNomics.com with the audio clips, with uh, questions and answers. Of course, that's always the most interesting part, is the question and answer session. Usually, uh, we're used to listening to these conference calls with questions from financial analysts. These were written-in questions from shareholders, read by uh, Investor Relations Senior Vice President Michael Weitz, but uh, questions uh, answered by Vince, by Paul Aveck, by Frank Riddick, even one by Stephanie McMahon, more J.R. Donlin. Uh, Responses in there as well. So you can read all about that and even listen to some of it at WrestleNomics.com because I have some of the audio clips embedded in the blog article itself. So that's all I have for now. Look for me appearing on other podcasts as I tend to do, especially quarterly around times like this. I'll be appearing for post-wrestling. We're recording that tomorrow, Friday. And I may even be appearing elsewhere so keep an eye out for that. And thanks to all the, the news sites that covered and gave credit to WrestleNomics for the, uh, the annual shareholders meeting, for the, the quarter-hour uh, breakdown of AEW and NXT this past week. And if you've got a friend out there who's trying to understand the wrestling business and trying to have opinions about it, and they're not listening to or reading the work coming from the WrestleNomics brand, well, please do them the favor. Spread the good word of mouth. Any recommendations and good reviews and social media sharing you can do of the written or audio work that I do is very appreciated and greatly valued. It is, I've heard, much easier and much more profitable to do human interest stories. That's generally not what we do here. We try to understand the economics that for better or worse so motivate what happens in the pro wrestling industry. So that's all for me this week. You can follow Wrestleonomics at Wrestleonomics. You can go to wrestleonomics.com. You can follow me at Brandon Thurston, and I'm Brandon Thurston, and I will talk to you next time.